Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. And if you've got the eye of a detective, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery adventure as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. With more than a thousand scenes filled with clues, there's always something new to discover. You may even trek across the globe for your next lead. Every week, new chapters are added with new characters to meet and places to search. Plus, there are tons of fun, unique features to keep you entertained. From building your own island estate with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings, to collecting scraps of information on each character to fill your photo album. You can even play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today, available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games. Cool. Put your paws to attention, and I mean that. Our first guest on today's Big Win Radio Way Back When History Show is author Trevor Jones. He's also he's an author of a number of award-winning books, all kinds of articles about museums, American history. He's worked as a museum curator, an exhibition designer, an educator, and he's also the director and CEO of the Nebraska State Historical Society. So we want to visit him when we get to Nebraska. I'm just saying this over and over because we're going to get to Nebraska on our Love Your Parks tour. I know it'll happen. We do all kinds of detours, and we get places sooner than we ever thought <laughs> this year, for sure, it's happened. Uh, but he's joining us today to talk about his latest book, Major, A Soldier Dog, and it features illustrations by Ming Hai, and you can go to Six Foot Publishing uh, to learn more, and to or sixfootpress.com, I should say, get right to the website. Uh, to get the book and go to Amazon, all those stores. And I want to say, go to your independent bookstore and ask for the book. That's also a way you can get it in person or even deliver to you online. So, Trevor, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Hey, it is good to have you on here. And it's good to talk about Nebraska history. And um, Nancy and I, neither one of us had any clue that you had a fort and the fort taught dogs how to be war dogs. We didn't even know there were mm-hmm. war dogs. So this is like a whole new thing. We know horses were involved in wars, but dogs, it, was it World War II that it started or before that for dogs? The, well, for in the United States, it's a really starts in World War II, and it's mm. very much a, a national story because what happened was when we first entered World War II, we were suddenly fighting a war on two fronts, and the idea was we needed soldiers to, you know, any place that we could get them. And so they started thinking, well, what what would help? And and the thought was, well, dogs could help. They could carry bandages. They could sniff out landmines. They could go on patrols and avoid ambushes. And they could help us. So we should, we should have some dogs. Other countries had um, dog training programs, but not the United States for the military. Wow. And hmm. we had one really big problem with that idea is that the United States had no military dogs. It had no military dog training program, and it didn't have any dogs at all to train. 
So they had a, a solution, a national solution, and that was to ask the American people to give up their pets to the war dog training program. And so these were just, you know, regular people with their animals at home and you would donate your dog and they would put it in a crate and they'd put it on a train and they'd send it off to places like Western Nebraska, Fort Robinson. And then they would train that dog to be a military dog. And that's wow. how it happened. And people did this by the, the tens of thousands. Wow. That's amazing because this is your family pet. And wasn't like the pit bull, the American dog, like a, the family dog way back then at at that point, like the pit bull was one. And um, I know now everyone's kind of scared of pit bulls, but that shouldn't be. Um, it's just how we raise them. But the American pit bull was like, there were, there were like war dogs that we kind of heard about, but didn't really quite get the story. What I love about your book is that it is geared towards the youth, and hopefully parents will get involved and understand these stories too. But you bring in the dog's sense of smell. And I think that, mm-hmm. and it's especially when it comes to food, you always include that part. Um, and I think that's where the human connection is with that, especially kids. They understand food smells. But you bring that in, so um, that's part of, I would say, one of their biggest attributes for a military is that, the dogs can smell. They smell bombs. They dogs are known to smell cancer. I mean, that's really one of their biggest, you know, qualities. Absolutely, and that's you know one of the the things that they really could do in World War II is dogs showed their value, especially in places like the South Pacific where they were fighting in jungles and it was very hard to see and people could be camouflaged. Your enemy soldiers were well camouflaged, so they would take dogs out and dogs could smell. Um, and they could hear better than we can. And so they would take them out and they would detect the ambush before it happened. And so they could either go around or back up uh, or call in an artillery strike, whatever they needed to do. And, and dogs were credited with saving, uh, with saving hundreds, if not thousands, of American soldiers' lives in World War II uh, just because their senses are so much better than ours in, in both uh, smell and hearing. Hmm. Was hmm. Fort Robinson, uh, the war drugs, uh, training center was Fort Robinson the main place, or were there other places through the country that trained dogs? Beginning of the war, there were training centers in Virginia and Montana and California and Nebraska, but the one at Fort Robinson was the largest one, and by the end of the war, Fort Robinson was the only one remaining. And so one of the things I love about this story is that people gave up their pets. And and the reason I wanted to write this book and especially do it as a children's book with these lovely illustrations that Ming Hai did for us is to get at those concepts of sacrifice and patriotism, which are, I think, hard concepts for adults to sometimes get at, Mm. but really difficult for kids because it's pretty abstract. But when you start phrasing this as um, would you give up your pet? to help your country or would you give up your pet to help somebody else, to help something larger than yourself, then you can really get at those concepts because that's what Americans did. I mean, they loved their pets. We love our pets. They're like family. And people 75 years ago felt the same way. This wasn't easy, but they they were giving up something and they didn't know their dog would would come back. I mean, this was not, there was no guarantee there. This was a risk and dogs were killed in the war. They died of disease. They died of uh, accidents and they died in combat. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, I just even, I know we pet sit, right? And we're just sitting with these beautiful dogs. <laughs> I'm just going, they're uh-huh. like our friends and lovey-dovey. And 
I really can't call them guard dogs at all. But, um, you know, and I even just think about them, I'm be like, no, no, <laughs> you know, I'm holding not. On no, heck no. But, but, but we're not but, threatened right now. No, we're not threatened. But I think it's a very interesting thing that you bring up because right now the country is not at a normal calm, right? Our country isn't, we can't, you know, tiptoe around that. That's a real thing. And I don't think the whole world is kind of at that, at this heat level. And I don't want to say world war three or anything. I don't want that. Um, no, but I feel don't. like we have to go back to those qualities of understanding what war is. I feel like we've kind of lost sight of just how bad it can be, how destructive it is. And also understanding sacrifice, like you talked about, um, I just feel like we've got it to this just kind of yelling portion. And at this point, we need to understand some values. And I think that's what your book does is bring us back home. You know what I mean? To what those, you know, just hello, your dog going off to war. That's a huge thing for, you know, the pet parents and the kids to understand. It's a big deal for the dogs. And I think right now we can kind of learn those lessons uh, so that we don't jump to the fire too fast. If that, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to be political. I'm just saying these values are important. Right. And, and the book, the book has a very personal story because it, it's, it's called major, a soldier dog and major was an actual dog uh, who served in mm-hmm. world war two. And he was given up uh, for the dogs for defense program and by an actual kid whose name was Sid and the the book tells the story of of Sid putting Major on a train and giving him up um, as a little boy. And mm. the the this is all true. There was a real Major and there was a real Sid. And when I started working on this book, um, the the actual Sid had written a letter to my organization, History Nebraska, and he had told mm. a little bit about that story of giving his dog up when he was five years old. And how absolutely uh, wrenching that was for him and how he remembered that like it was yesterday. So when Mm -hmm. I started researching the book, I wondered, I wonder if Sid is still living. And so I tracked him down and he is still alive. And I got to interview him for Mm -hmm. this. And he remembers this moment when he was five and he put Major um, in the crate and sent him off to Fort Robinson, Nebraska, like it was yesterday. And Uh, and so I, you know, that's part of that story is that individual sacrifice. And then when Sid grew up, he actually enlisted in the military, he was an officer and he traces his enlistment and his service to his country from that moment, because he felt like if his dog could serve and sacrifice for the country, he should do the same. And so this was a wow. really core moment in, in his upbringing, in his life and how he thought about the world. Wow. And for you, you know, connecting with him. I mean, that had to push you to do the best you can, right? (laughs) You already have that in you, but you know what I mean? When you connect with someone who's been in a world war, I mean, there's not very Mm. many of them left are veterans from the world wars or, you know, so I think that's got to be a big deal to have met Sid. Well, absolutely. And and one of the great things about this project is that we had a lot of interviews and, and, uh, 
reminiscences from soldiers who had served with dogs in our collection here at History Nebraska, and I was able to use those, and a lot of those people have mm-hmm. passed on, so it was great to be able to sort of honor those memories, and it's a, you know, it's a book for kids, but the illustrations are historically accurate. They're based on what Fort Robinson looked like, what the dog program looked like, and, and we did a lot of research about dogs um, and how they behave because the, the story is told from the perspective of major. It's told from the, a dog's point of view. And so um, Major is all about smells and he's all about how, mm-hmm. how things smell. And we tried to illustrate that visually with the the, the illustrations that Ming Hai did and, um, and, and sort of get at that. So there's a scene uh, in the book where Major gets sent overseas. He's, he's getting sent to Europe and they, they sent both uh, humans and dogs uh, on boats. And one of the things is that dogs get seasick, just like people get seasick. Mm. And so we, yeah. we represented that as, as him being sick as he and goes across as being a miserable dog. And we had um, uh, diary entries in our collection from soldiers that, that were serving with the, um, with the war dog program. And, and they talked about how miserable they were and how miserable the dogs were for that entire crossing. <laughs> it was weeks of weeks of misery on, on board. I ship. bet. Yeah. yeah, I bet. Oh. I mean, Seriously, when you think about it, they've got four feet. We have two, and we're miserable, so they're probably doubly miserable. <laughs> it sounds like this, they should be more stable, but that's not their deal, you know. And they, and we don't speak their language, you know. That's the other thing that's really hard. You can't. It's really hard to help animals if you can't hear what they're saying, you know. You, you don't. You don't have that same language, though we do. But we, you know, we can tapping as best we can but i think that's one of the hardest things for vet and veterinarians is you know what are you saying what hurts where you know mm-hmm. to be able to yeah and them. i think that's that's one of the things that they learned in in very much in world war ii so if you think about all the things that we use dogs for today in terms of being service animals or even military mm-hmm. dogs today and back in world war ii they didn't there were no training manuals when they started this they there was no uniform way of you know how do we how do you train a dog and so they had to develop that and they developed a a war dog training manual in during world war ii and then a lot of the people that trained these dogs when they returned to civilian life they kept training dogs and they trained dogs for the visually impaired and they they use those same techniques and so there's a continuity between you know, 75 years ago and and today in terms of how we think about dogs and use them as service animals. And one of the key parts that comes out of this training program in World War II was they really decided that you had to have a partnership with the animal. If it was a, a service animal, that you had to have a relationship between the handler, the person who was working, and the dog. And that had to be based on, based on mutual trust, and it could not be based on fear. So you couldn't train a dog by making it afraid of you and expect it to work well with you. It had to be a relationship. And that's the only way that they really worked well in a combat situation because the dog had to be able to trust the soldier and the soldier mm-hmm. had to be able to trust the dog. And there's a mutual relationship. And that is really still one of the, the absolute core tenets of training service animals of any type today is that, that mm-hmm. bond and that trust. And that's something that came out of directly. I mean, it's explicitly stated um, in the training manual that the dog shall not be ruled by fear. And that's, that's oh. what, um, what they said. So, you know, there's some, you know, some of that, way that you think about animals today. I mean, they've certainly improved training methods, but that has its origin in World War II. Wow, that's amazing because even just, we just recorded this interview with Dr. Gary Weitzman. He's a veterinarian and uh, CEO of uh, San Diego 
a humane society, and he was, he wrote two books for National Geographic. He's written a number of books, but it was a kids' book about teaching your dogs, you know, training your dogs and your cats. And his whole thing is like no fear training. It's all about mm-hmm. no fear. And so it's really interesting talking to you. It's like this whole full circle coming around because I don't think fear because it's there's no core in that. Um, nothing. You'll you'll get bitten if it's fear. Uh, but it's interesting too, you know. We lived in uh, Arizona for a, a number of years, and and California, Southern California, and we lived in Mexico. And you go through the border and border patrol mm-hmm. crossings, and there's always dogs. And you know you want to pet the dog, but the dogs are, I mean, they're sniffing everything out. And I've watched dogs take down cocaine things, you know. And somebody in front of me in a car, like this dog knew it. You wouldn't see it. And dog knew this is what happened. And, you know, it's just like this, I don't know, it's an amazing relationship, you know, between the Border Patrol agent and the dog. And just like, whoa, don't mess with them, man. Heck no. But the dog really knows what they're, I mean, airports, right, Nancy? Yeah. yeah. Dogs know. Dogs know. Well, well yeah, and, and I, I have to say that that's the one of the absolute you know best parts of this World War II story is that the the military used these dogs all over the world and then at the end of the war when when the war ended and pretty much almost exactly 75 years ago um now, right now um they brought those dogs back to Fort Robinson Nebraska and they they shipped them all the way back and then they spent weeks training them no longer to be to be war dogs but to be pets again so they you know when when they were when they were soldiers only their handler could touch them and and there were certain rules and then when they brought them back they had to train them to be pets and that's what they did so they spent weeks training them and then they shipped those dogs back at government expense back to the people that had originally donated them to the program wow. so if you had given up your dog a couple of years before to fight in the war when the war ended if you were lucky and not all dogs survived, but many did, then you got your dog back, showed back up at the train station, and you not only got your dog, but you got a, a doggy discharge paper that said your dog had been honorably discharged from the U.S. military, just like soldiers did, and you and you had your pet back. And, and they really cared a lot about making sure that they got those dogs back to people. And I'm not giving the story away from the book Major, a Soldier yeah. Dog. If I say that uh, Major came back, it's a, it's it's it ends happily. He comes back to Sid, um, and that's what happened in real life. And there's a picture in the back of the book of, of real Sid and real Major together, the actual ones, years ago. And then there's a picture of um, Major's doggy discharge from World War II, showing yeah. that he had been a soldier dog. So, uh, you know, they, they really did think about them as, as a loan from the American people and not, you know, just a military. I love the playoffs. Anything can happen. But the best part, it's like bonus football. And bonus football. Means betting bonuses with Gambit DC. For a limited time, get up to a 57% multi sport parlay boost on the Gambit DC app, online, or at any Gambit DC retail location throughout the district. It's the most exciting time to be a fan. So make your play and get the whole field advantage with Gambit DC. Limited time offer, terms and conditions apply. Please buy responsibly. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? 
You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Military asset. But we learned from it. That that was, you know, the whole thing at the end of the day, we learned, right? And that's how we have dogs at Border Patrol airports. I mean, even in September 11th, didn't they help fa- find the bodies mm-hmm. under That's the correct. rubble? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So I think what it, animals are animals are really way smarter than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of like we're the ultimate species looking down on the others, and we're going to control, train, do all that. You know, and I think they have abilities that we don't see because we always put ourselves at the top of the chain. And I think sometimes just opening your mind a little bit without going where at the top and just looking at any animal species, you'll find they have abilities that we haven't recognized before because mm-hmm. we don't want to see a, it. That's a, it's amazing that they did this in World War II and going, hey, okay, let's use our dogs. I mean, that's, I mean, I wonder about that when that first happened and someone comes up with that idea what that was like if people thought it was nutty. You know what I mean? You mean my dog that plays fetch, you know, for that to happen? Yeah, I think some people did, um, but I think they they saw that potential, and certainly not every dog uh, succeeded in getting through the program and had a rigorous training program. And so if your dog wasn't, you know, war dog material, they, they would send it back to you and say, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, it didn't, didn't pass the tests. Uh, Cause they had to, they had to be very um, serious about that. Like one of the things that they did is that dogs had to pass basically basic training and they had to, to learn not only voice commands, but they had to learn silent commands, arm commands. So if they were, mm-hmm. were telling them, because if you're, you've got your dog on the battlefield and you're, you're trying to avoid an ambush, you don't want to have to say something out loud and you need the dog to be quiet and it needs to recognize what you want it to do. So they had arm commands to, for jump and lay down and come here and, and go away and all the rest of that. And the dogs had to pass those tests. So not every dog was wow. suited for it. Yeah, they said that for the September 11 dogs. We did a couple interviews years ago about that. And it was mm-hmm. there like, if your dog is one of the dogs that will just keep going after a ball and fetch and really be, I'll go in the bushes to find that, that toy or whatever, that was a candidate. So that's interesting you say that. Do, do you think that it was more dogs that were hunting dogs and farm dogs that are used to work, like sheep dogs, like, uh, you know, Australian sheepdogs that are herding, you know, herding dogs and things like that, that were taken in. Well, at the beginning of the war, they were desperate. So they took in pretty much any dog anybody wanted to give them. They wanted a certain height, a certain weight, but they took mm-hmm. in, in Great Danes and they took in um, poodles uh, and they, you know, they took in Dalmatians. Wow. They took in all these, all Ooh. these animals and uh, oh, they tried, you know, they tried everything. They wanted dogs and they wanted them fast. Uh, no and chihuahua. by the end of the war, you see much more like German shepherds and, um, mm-hmm. you know, dogs, dogs like that. You'd think about as a as a uh, you know a military dog today but major in the book is a border collie and he mm. was a scout dog 
And a lot of the reminiscences of um, soldiers who served with these dogs say that the best scout dogs were were border collies. That was a great breed for that because they're very smart. Um, if you've ever uh, met a border collie, they're very smart. They have a lot of energy, um, mm-hmm. but they follow commands well, and they're very attuned to human emotions. And they were they were really they made some of the best dogs. Um, yeah. So you know, but there's some funny stories. Like one of the the things they did in World War II was they had all these Dalmatians and once they had the Dalmatians, they realized that they really showed up well on the battlefield. They were just too easy to see. And so they mm-hmm. got this bright idea that they were going to dye them all. And so they dumped oh. them in big things of dye to make them black. No. And so they couldn't be seen. And that worked mm-hmm. okay. Uh, but mm-hmm. then it rained. And the dye all ran out of the dogs, and they had all these sort of, no. you know, dyed dogs that were slowly fading back. And they were like, okay, that didn't that didn't work. But they oh. they really were trying anything they could um, because they they thought we need thousands of dogs. And they, at Fort Robinson alone, there were six, five, six thousand dogs there at any given time, and about seventeen thousand dogs through the course of the war. So you know, wow. if we're talking a lot of animals here. This was not a small program. Did any other countries catch on to this with the dogs going out because? I mean, it has to, you know, because I'm just even thinking, yeah, service dogs and everything. Because, like, I'm thinking about Italy. I know that Major went to Italy. And Italy, I know they use their dogs to sniff out truffles, you know, in the mm-hmm. woods and stuff. So, yep. yeah. I, yeah, it's kind of, it's it's interesting how this whole connection with dogs happens. But did other countries use dogs during World War II or did we come up and then, no, I, I would say one. that other countries, other countries were actually ahead of us in, mm-hmm. in World War II, and so yeah. um, we, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert in in other countries, but I do know that in the early days of the American Dog Training Program, they actually had experts from England um, mm-hmm. come over and show what the English had been doing with dogs and help. Um, some of the American trainers learn new techniques. So, um, but we were on a, like, like many things that the Americans did in World War II, we did them on a scale that, that had not been seen before. I mean, we just, we, you know, we produced more, uh, more soldiers, more weapons, all these, all these, this material. And we also trained dogs on a scale. So, um, you know, I, I, I imagine, what it must have been like because they, when they started the Fort Robinson camp, they were trying to do it quickly. And I've seen some of the requisitions where they're they're asking, you know, we need we need ten thousand bowls, we need six thousand dog collars, we need material for ten thousand wow. dog houses, and we need it all tomorrow. And I can imagine the pers- poor person from the quartermaster court <laughs> saying, "You need what? <laughs> so yeah, really. how do I get how do I get ten thousand bowls? Uh, that's uh, that's a, a great question. But that's how but that's how they built it. They built it quick. Wow, that's amazing. And and I like it because it's the country coming together, right, uh, for the common good. Um, now, History Nebraska, because I'm talking about the, you know, at the beginning I was introduced to you, it's like Nebraska State Historical Society, that you're the director and CEO of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you guys go right down to it's History Nebraska, and you can go on the website, everyone. It's history.nebraska.gov, and you can learn more about Fort Robinson through there. But, yeah, so – how much of history is part of your tourism to Nebraska? I'm fascinated about this because of our other travel writer, Debbie Stone, coming up to northwest Nebraska. And she's like, girls, man, we all have to go there. There's so much going on, <laughs> you know. So um, how much history is, is part of why people come up to visit? I, it's a it's a 
big part. Um, I'm, of course, we're biased because <laughs> that's what we do, uh, but we have a network of historic sites all across the state, and um, so you can trace from you know the pre. Uh, history, Native American history, going back um, 12, 14,000 years, uh, all the way up up to the present. So we have historic sites that cover all of those topics uh, here in Nebraska that we operate. Um, just if you think about Fort Robinson by itself, it's mm -hmm. got uh, huge connections to American history. It was a, a fort in the Indian Wars, and uh, it was uh, where Crazy Horse was killed. Uh, the Lakota Crazy Horse wow. was killed there. And it was a um, uh, if Buffalo soldiers served out there, African-American soldiers, and then uh, it was the last Army remount station. So um, the, some of the greatest uh, horses ever bred in the United States were, were bred at Fort Robinson. Kentucky Derby winners were bred at Fort Robinson. Um, so it was a, a great horse culture. And then during World War II, it had the dog program uh, as well. And then it became a USDA cattle research station. And now it is a national historic landmark. And it is an absolutely gorgeous part of the state. And a lot of people think about Nebraska as, as being flat. Um, but that's because you're traveling along the Platte River where pioneers went through, and it, that's the easiest way to go. But Fort Robinson is beautiful with these sandstone buttes that, that uh, mm. uh, rise above the prairie and, and these grasses and, and lakes, and it is a, just a, a stunningly gorgeous place to visit. I'm looking at it now on your website, and I don't know. Nancy and I both have a thing about prairies and grasslands mm -hmm. because, you know, and I think there's a misconception of it, too. Uh, prairies are just laden with bird life, and all kinds of activity goes on wildlife-wise, right? And I always think about, you know, the settlers coming in, the pioneers, settlers. It's interesting how we put those two together, right? Pioneer, settler. Because you had, mm -hmm. to, you had well, to go across. the other. I know, but it's so, like, the amount of work and the fear, talk, we were talking about fear, fear earlier, coming across the country to Nebraska, and, like, didn't they kind of almost have to dry farm at the beginning, but you have rivers, right? You were saying that, too, but, mm -hmm. I mean, that had to be a hard life to set up Nebraska in the very beginning, just to... Yes, and, and you know, the first... the. You know, one of the, the the main things about Nebraska is it's really the central way on the Oregon Trail for people that were heading west, um, and so this was you know this was the largest um, uh, human migration in in you mm -hmm. know historic memory, uh, with all of these people passing through, and then the ones who who remained, you know, one of the things that, that made that possible was um, windmills. And so the, to pump water, you know, to, to get water mm -hmm. out from underground and be able to bring it up. And that made made it possible. And so um, that, you know, sort of changes how settlement happens um, as, as well. So, you know, a lot of the landmarks that are on the Oregon Trail, one of our other historic sites is Chimney Rock in the western part of the state, which is actually mm -hmm. on Nebraska's quarter. It's it's that significant um, to the state's history, and that is the most described um, geological formation on the Oregon Trail. More, more people, you know, sketch Chimney Rock in their diaries than any other uh, spot on the Oregon Trail, and it was just this, this huge landmark, and it's a um, still a visited, a very visited site. Um, it's a really great way to understand that Western migration that happened in the United States. Wow. That's amazing, because you've got such rich Native American history, of course, too, you mm -hmm. know, and that's, you know, the indigenous people of America, and so 
when you think about all these cultures coming through, and then here's World War Two. So when you go to, uh, you know, Fort Robinson, um, you you've got a kennel there, right? I believe that that people can visit a, a dog kennel from back. In yeah, if you if you visit Fort Robinson, you can see the remains, what's left of the dog training center, and we have paths and we have interpretive signage, so you can see how they train the dogs and where they were, and we have a museum there that interprets not just that part of Fort Robinson's history, but all of it. But you can see artifacts from the dog training program and, and dog houses and, and things like that. And if you go to our website, if you, if you can't get to Western Nebraska, if you want to just go to history.nebraska.gov, you can see pictures of the dog training program that we used as the basis for the illustrations in the book Major a Soldier Dog. So you can you can see, you know, all of that rich history all all there together and also pictures of other, you know, parts of Fort Robinson's history and, and Nebraska's history as well. Cool. Now, are you selling the book uh, Major a Soldier Dog through your gift shops, through the museums, and, and through you know, your organization? Absolutely. You can go to history.nebraska.gov slash books, and you can get it there, but it's also available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and if you um, are lucky enough to have an independent bookseller, um, you could see if they're carrying it. If not, you can ask them to, to get your ask, copy. Ask. Yeah, go cool. to your independence. Yeah. I'm always like fighting for the independence, you know. But <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, really, Nancy and I both appreciate your work in this. And how many books have you written now? I mean, I know you've done a number of them. Uh, have you done a lot of children's books? Or this is my first children's book. This was this mm-hmm. was the first children's book that that I've ever done, and um, I really just felt that this was a story that lent itself to kids that it was a, a story about a little boy giving up his dog and I felt like that 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 should be something that kids can bond with and and mm-hmm. I think they have and I've I've heard a lot of of stories about you know it's really for young readers um, but for even for little kids you can find the dog on every page because there's at least one dog mm-hmm. on every page of the book uh, and for older um, people there's a lot of uh, historical facts and there's an extensive afterward where we really describe you know the the real history behind this and it was important to me and I'm probably the only one who really cares but um, all the illustrations we wanted to make sure that they were as accurate as we could possibly make them so when people are wearing uniforms we wanted those uniforms to be right when the um, you know when things are happening uh, in the book we wanted that to, to look like how things actually happened in World War II and even though it's a, a book for kids we wanted it to tell a true story and that's what it is a true story I think that's really important. You you're glossing over it, but it's credibility and as mm-hmm. as you grow up, credibility is huge in what you trust and what you don't trust. So I kudos to you for that cuz yeah. kids aren't stupid, you know? They remember things mm-hmm. and when they can identify, oh that's what he said over there and I recognize that so I trust it. So I think that's great. It's I love integrity. that credibility. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's oh, important. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's important, like Nancy said, too, yeah. because, you know, it's like we're visual. And there's, I mean, look, Instagram is popular because it's visual. So you want the correct visual, not a fake visual. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Especially that's, that's, in the world of TV where some of it's credible, some of it's fiction, and it's meant to be. So for a child to know, well, this is the real deal, I think that's important. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a parent, which I'm not. But as a parent, if I was a parent, I would I would buy a book that was credible like that versus one mm-hmm. that wasn't because then I know my child is learning something that's true 
it, it's it's a fun story, but it's a true story. You you made it a true. I mean, it's a true story, but a fun story. Sad at points. I'm just gonna say, mm-hmm. um, but you know that's important too that kids understand that you can't have sacrifice without sacrifice, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that children have to learn as well that you do give up things in life. So, oh, kudos, yeah, absolutely. And I really hope we get to come out to Nebraska soon. We've had so many detours on this road trip that we're doing. You know, we travel full-time on our Love Your Parks tour. But our thing is to document as many parks and public lands as possible. And that includes places like Fort Robinson. And uh, when Debbie came on our show, Debbie Stone, travel writer, she came on and started talking about Northwest Nebraska. I've never been to Nebraska. It's one of my favorite <laughs> states that I haven't been to. And I'm doing it this year of COVID. And we were like, well, who knew? Man, this is amazing. And – um Definitely, we we look forward to getting up to your state and learning more because we love prairies and there's birds in prairies and there's all mm-hmm. the history for sure. Uh, so thank you. I love it that you. Isn't it weird how things happen? <laughs> you ended mm-hmm. up on a show on National Dog Day too, so that's cool too. So, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Again, uh, the book is by Trevor Jones and it's called Major, a Soldier Dog. Uh, you can go to six footpress.com and that's six spelled out six foot press i would say they should be four foot press but you know because i'm into four four feet dogs but anyway <laughs> six foot press.com <laughs> is the website and again uh for uh nebraska's history go to history.nebraska.gov thank you so much for joining us trevor thank you it's my pleasure take care bye-bye bye-bye Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.